Hello, welcome to Everyday Anarchism. Uh, I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. I'm joined today by one science fiction writer by the name of James S.A. Corey, who is in fact two science fiction writers. So if the two-headed leviathan that is James S.A. Corey is willing to introduce him slash themselves, why don't you guys go ahead? Uh, hi, I'm Daniel Abraham. I'm the, the James half of James S.A. Corey. Um, and I've been writing novels and producing a TV show for a while now. Uh, I'm Ty. <laughs> now you're up to date. Okay. So we have we have James and Ty. And uh, if you are not familiar, they're the authors of the nine volume and assorted other short pieces uh, novel series, The Expanse, and uh, as well as writers on the show of the uh, sci-fi, I believe, and later Amazon adaptation uh, of those books, also called The Expanse. And just, I absolutely loved the TV show. Um, I couldn't believe that someone was making such a thing at the budget it was being made at the time. I got so excited, went out, found the books, loved them too. Um, and we are here today to talk about the, the the future envisioned in these novels and this TV show, which is a future with um, with lots of authoritarianism and more than a little anarchism. In the show, at least, the, the anarchist logo shows up a few times, although not always in the most uh, in the most flattering <laughs> locales. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, wouldn't say that the use of that was an accurate reflection of uh, anarchism in general or any particular <laughs> political strategy. So much as one guy's attempt at, at branding. Yeah. Yeah. It's and it's not and it's not actually the anarchist logo. It's um, it was a art department person's attempt at the OPA logo, the split circle OPA logo mm -hmm. from uh, from the books. Uh, the split circle, as described in the books, wasn't uh, visually interesting enough for them. Mm -hmm. So they they came up with that. So, um, yeah, it, it does. It does look a little bit like the the anarchist. A, but um, that was never what it was supposed to represent. It's supposed to represent an organization, the the Outer Planets Alliance. Yep. Yeah, and this, I mean, so I jumped, I jumped ahead too fast. Let's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reel it back a bit and say, so oh. the 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 premise of the show. Well, for the listeners who may or may not have read the books or seen the show, and I've certainly been proselytizing for them since the since I discovered them for the show uh, when the show came out in almost a decade ago now. It's gotta be like 2013, 2014, something like that. Maybe. Because like okay. yeah, it was, with the first book came out in 2011 and we were writing the fifth book, I think, when the when we started doing the show. Uh, so, that sounds right. Yeah, so 2014 or 15, something like that. Probably 14, yeah. probably 14. Okay, so the premise, for those of you who have not seen the show, and if you have not, you should start watching the show and or reading the books. I think the, I, the experience of either one is a great place to start. I have no complaints with anyone starting either with either place. Is The, um, the world has expanded to uh, a second large uh, political grouping besides Earth, Mars, and then the belt. So people are spread all across the asteroid belt and various other parts of the solar system. It's a sort of neo-colonial situation, and there's a great deal of kind of great power conflict between 
Mars and Earth, although there's technically a, a, an alliance between them. And then uh, in a sort of classic 19th and 20th century fashion, there are uh, there's a tread upon, a trod upon population that is trying to figure out ways to resist the people in space who are responsible. They're the essential workers of the uh, of the galaxy, or in this case, the galaxy comes later, of the solar system. And the organization that I brought up already, the OPA, Outer Planets Alliance, I, everyone just calls them OPA, is that right? Yep. Is a group of people who, who want to resist the inner hegemony. So it certainly seems to me to be a, a, a very classic um, scenario, as is so often done with both fantasy and science fiction. In some ways, it's drawn from Earth's history, the idea of colonialism, expansion, resistance, that sort of thing, but also with, you know, the the idea of what that would be like if it extended uh, along the way that we're, we seem to be seeing the world um, going in that. Now I'm just blathering. So why don't you guys, why don't you guys talk about the world as, as it exists and the, and the politics and sociology of it? Um, okay. Yeah, it's 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 three sort of loosely organized powers in a very imbalanced uh, high pressure system. You got the the coalition of nations that make up Earth um, in sort of a top down world government that doesn't work very well, um, but works well enough to keep the you know to keep the trains running and the power on and and people fed. Um, that can only exist because of the massive wealth that is constantly pouring in from one of the other groups, which is the the outer planets. You know, the the enormous wealth of the belt is constantly funneling into to Earth and Mars, and that's what allows Earth to to keep its head above water. And then you've you've got the the OPA, which is sort of a self designated group of of uh kind of half trade union half uh wannabe government <laughs> but but it's you know people always think like the belters are a unified group but they're not they're they're spread across more area in the solar system than you could possibly imagine i mean they're they're spread across an asteroid belt that is in the orbit between uh Jupiter and Mars, which is an unimaginably vast area with thousands of different stations. And yeah, they kind of all want the same thing in that they don't want to be heavily taxed by the inner planets and they want better working conditions and those sorts of things. So they have, in that way, they have a loose um, agreement on what they want for the future. But individually, each of those stations has its own accent. It has its own customs. It has its own individual requirements for what survival looks like and so even within the opa it, it's very loosely organized and it's sort of antagonistic even within the organization think of it like um you know the ira or hamas where it presented this vision of what it wanted but within it they were constantly infighting they were murdering each other inside the organization that kind of thing was going on um, and then you've got Mars, which is really kind of almost the only monoculture we have in the expanse, which um, started very small, 
with with a real they're the only group that has like a really solid purpose which is to terraform so they're the group that becomes our our sort of our version of what happens when you lose your sense of purpose so they yeah. start out at the beginning of the books in the series as a strongly organized single purpose uh government and and culture and and civilization and then over the course of the books loses that goal loses that purpose and we see what happens to to uh, highly organized groups that lose their lose their way yeah with mars when we were first kind of working this through we the the model that ty um kind of presented for that was the the folks in medieval europe who were building cathedrals over the course mm -hmm. of of generations where you had this this um larger purpose where the the guy who who uh set the first brick would not be alive to see the project finished um that would be his his great great grandkids um but because there was that unity of purpose that came through kind of a religious identity these these huge things became possible so that that was kind of what that what Mars was intended to chime with. And 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 in its fall to sort of resonate with the, you know, I was a kid of the 80s, so the fall of the Soviet Union yeah. was very powerful for me. And that that something can seem so solid, so uh, immovable, like the Soviet Union seemed like the greatest enemy you could ever have. It was it was powerful and it was, uh, it was unified and in, you know implacable, and then within the space of just a decade, it was just gone, and chopped into pieces, and and the people who ran it turned into mobsters, and it was amazing how fast that happened, and so because that was always on my mind as an adult when we were talking about Mars and the fall of Mars, how quickly something can go from what appears to be this completely solid social structure to a gang of criminals, you know, stripping the corpse uh, is it was a big part of the development of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm I've struck over and over again with your guys' work with the <clears throat> attention to culture and sociology. So uh, absolutely, it does seem again with the historical analogs. In the, some ways, Mars resembles the Soviet Union as well as cathedral builders and then there's a successor civilization that becomes in some ways even more devoted to its purpose and even more uh, uh well, authoritarian yeah go ahead it grows out of mars i mean it, right. it's it's one that it it is um when mars loses that purpose you wind up seeing um the people for whom that structure was very important and who find another purpose and who kind of uh, triple down. I mean, the, the, there's a um, a pretty well-known study of uh, uh, a millennialist cult mm -hmm. that when the 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 UFOs or whatever don't show up, when the apocalypse doesn't come, it radicalizes the people because um, that that loss of face, that loss of what they had. Um, is powerful enough that it drives them farther in there's that and and i think in a way that happens with with mars when the 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 purpose of mars goes away 
the people who still need a purpose, like triple down on having one. Um, and that leads to a whole, yeah, successor civilization that that is uh, a distilled version of what Mars was before. At this point, I think I should also say that there is a there is a major, you know, far science fiction element in the show in that the humanity does encounter um, an alien civilization or the byproduct of the alien civilization. It's very interesting stuff. It's simply not the kind of thing that I I am interested in talking about in terms of the politics and sociology of of the universe. I, I want to go back to the OPA and talk about again. Again, I'm struck with the excellence of your guys' understanding of, of history and this sort of future sociology. Because, of course, the OPA isn't unified. There's no way that it could be unified. Not everyone in the belt is a member of the OPA. Um, you've got the People's Liberation Front of Judea and the Judean yeah. Judea People's Liberation Front. And that is how every revolutionary movement has ever worked. I mean, and they, sorry, go ahead. And it, and it happens, I mean, Ty was talking about um, Mars being as close as it can be to a monoculture in in the world we, we did. You know, Earth and the, the inner planets as a thing, they're also um, possessed by a diversity of opinion and factionalism and different people working within the same government across purposes, um, you know, down to people in the same office. I mean, it, it's kind of <laughs> fractal. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think if there's, if there's something we tried to get right um, about how people work, it's that, that factionalization and that fracture and that idea of um, setting the size of your tribe. Um, that comes up in a bunch of different contexts. In the the course of the story is what who who is us what does us count as and that can get down to you know the 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 three guys in the the spaceship you know two of them are a group and the other one's not or it can get up to the size of a species yeah and and i, I wouldn't discount the 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 alien stuff too much because I mean, we're we're a sci-fi show, so so we're going to include sci-fi elements. But but really, what the proto molecule is in the story is it's it's the newly introduced destabilizing influence, yeah. and and we see those things right now that aren't aliens. Like look at look at how hard totalitarian cultures and governments on Earth right now are working to try to control the internet. The internet is a destabilizing influence. It's a destabilizer of those things. It's a it's a channel through which people can get an information that before could be tightly controlled by a government. And so you've got you've got a, you've got a number of governments on Earth right now trying to figure out how they can stop their citizens from reading whatever they want on the internet, or um, ultimately flooding the zone with shit so that other people are destabilized yeah. by that information. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, so so you know because we're writing sci-fi, we used a sci-fi version of it. But history is filled with everything seems to kind of hit an equilibrium. Oh no, here's a destabilizer, and then society scrambles to figure out how to fold that destabilizing influence into their culture, 
and then you get to another equilibrium and the next destabilizing thing comes. So so that's really what our our alien influence in the expanse is. It's just it's the internet. It's the it's the next thing that kind of pushes the game board over and makes everybody figure out how to pick the pieces up. Yeah. Yeah, and um you know, one of the the definition of science fiction that I like or you can say speculative fiction because it certainly can work in a in a fantasy world as well is it's a world that you know, it resembles ours in which people are are like us, except that something has changed. And the writer tries to imagine the effects of that change on both society and humanity. The Expanse takes place after one, you know, huge destabilizing factor, which is the creation of the Epstein Drive, which is yep. a technology that allows the belt to exist. The belt would not exist without... Um, uh, without the Epstein drive, we, it wouldn't work in our current universe with our current technology. So the leaping off point is there's there's this sort of unstable equilibrium caused by a previous, you know, great leap forward, the Epstein drive, the ability to travel around the solar system efficiently. And then the protomolecule is the is the next one. And we certainly could imagine an entire, Caprica style series that goes, you know, and sees the the destabilization of the previous epoch via the Epstein drive. But that would be another another, I would say, <laughs> nine volume narrative to get yeah, we, to get where we, we are. We we covered that in a short story. There's a short story. <laughs> no, I, I am, we're good. I am aware that you covered it in a short story, but I'm imagining yeah. uh, what it would what it would look like in its in its full glory. But we, it, we would, can, it would be much longer if it were much longer. <laughs> I have a well known hatred of prequels, so yeah, it's true. We probably won't be writing that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fair enough. I I am more or less a prequel hater. Um, although I don't know if you guys watched Better Call Saul, but that has <laughs> Better Call Saul struck me as a different project. It, yeah. it, it's a related but different project. I agree. Uh, it's it, it's also written by Vince Gilligan, who which, is, yeah. I mean, maybe one of the most genius writers working today. I, I mean, every time I'm talking about uh, writing projects that people should be careful of, somebody will bring up the one amazing <laughs> writer who actually did that. You know, every now and then somebody will go, Are, "What do you feel about writing in third person omniscient?" And I'll say. Dune was written in third-person omniscient. It's it's entirely possible to write a great book in third-person omniscient. However, Dune was written by Frank Herbert. If you're not <laughs> Frank Herbert, maybe think twice before embarking on that project. Uh, Daniel and I are not Vince Gilligan. We're going to think twice yep. before we try to write the brilliant, the most brilliant prequel of our generation. Yeah, but if if David Simon wants to do the prequel to The Wire, I'll watch it. I'm going to sure, I'm absolutely. In. But. Uh, so I actually I wanted to talk about David Simon because um, you know when when the G Game of Thrones is what the TV show is called although now it's what it's what everything in that universe is called but when when the Song of Ice and Fire adaptation Game of Thrones began there were a number of people myself included um, comparing it to The Wire in that it was an examination of uh, bureaucracy and sociology and also violence and also social change. And when The Expanse came out, the TV show, a lot of people compared it to Game of Thrones. I mean, Game of Thrones in space was sort of the tagline, at least in a lot of the reviews. I found The Expanse in a lot of ways more 
similar to the wire. I thought it fit in that sort of bureaucratic place and that there was less um there was less emphasis. Uh, yeah, I see Daniel's you know well, frowning at me. I feel like anytime you're in fantasy uh territory, and I say this as a guy who's written a bunch of fantasy, um you you're really in relationship almost more to religion than you are to um sociology or bureaucracy or social criticism because there's the the idea of the righteous king and the great chain of being and that everybody has a uh you know the the right king on the throne regreens the world that's kind of the the thing that either you are embracing or pushing against when you're writing fantasy um and i think when you get to something like the wire or uh the expanse or science fiction projects um, you're kind of less in the shadow of the great chain of being and of the idea of the righteous king. I mean, we still we still touch on that. We still go there with the in the last three books. We have a guy who's pretty sure he's the righteous king, um, but there's like six books before that when we don't. So yeah, I think there's I think there's more wiggle room in some genres than others. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm also thinking. You know, there is a way, it does seem to me, I think I mentioned this in the questions I sent along, there is a way that this this story is the story of a small group of people on an epic quest to save the world. And that, in that sense, it, it almost seems to me to remind me more of the Lord of the Rings than it does um, Game of Thrones. Because for all of the kaleidoscopic perspectives in the, the novels, there is still a pretty clear moral center and neither the wire nor game of thrones have a moral center unless you guys want to disagree about that as well as as the authors it is your right uh, i well I, i'm about to disagree that the wire doesn't have a moral center um i, I think I, the, the wire absolutely has a moral center and uh all of the characters brush up against it a little bit mm. in different ways um and nobody fully successfully occupies it. Um, that's 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 what the wire the wire is saying. Yeah, there is good and there is evil, mm. and everybody's kind of bumping into both of those things all of the time. Uh, I would not call the wire a nihilistic show by any by any stretch of the imagination. It, um, it, I always felt, felt like Game of Thrones and the, the whole Song of Ice and Fire um, was often misunderstood as a uh a fantasy adventure and it it it's it always read to me as um kind of uh it, it's a very sorrow sorrowful mm. book and a very sorrowful project that there's it's it's a uh kind of expanded meditation on the failure of the idea of the great chain of being and the, the the um taking this genre that you know where when aragorn takes the throne things are fixed and argues that things don't get fixed um i i think um it always read to me as mournful in a way that that i don't think other folks saw that and I, th I, I see some of that too in the wire, and I see some of that too in in the expanse. Honestly, I, I think, um, you know, the 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 argument that we're making 
in the expanse is not the argument of human perfectibility. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that uh, we can get it right. Um, well, I mean, I, I think one of our characters says exactly what you're saying when she says that, that she's sad because she thinks of all the amazing things we could have accomplished if we weren't trying to do them with humans. Yeah. <laughs> if we had just turned out to be a little bit better than we are, we could yeah. have pulled it off. One of the caricatures of of anarchism is that you know the anarchists think that everyone is good and all you have to do is is uh, remove authoritarian structures and everything will be great. This is this is not true. This is ridiculous. But one version of anarchism suggests that you will create monstrosity and nightmares if you act like humans are different than they are. And if you think you can impose a hierarchical structure that does not acknowledge the, I mean, whether it's fucked up or just messed up nature of humanity, that's where you go wrong. And to a certain extent in the show, but much more in the books, it seems to me that James Holden, who is the character who is certainly not shown to be the the only moral figure in the books, but is, I would argue, the strongest moral figure in the books. And again, you can disagree with that. He, he doesn't believe in a, in a perfect world or a, he doesn't believe in an anarcho-communist utopia, but he does believe, I mean, and I would describe this as a version of anarchism, that everybody always has to have a voice and everybody always has to get a fair shake and everybody always has to have their chance to participate. That's what I took away as the moral center of, of the expanse and that's in my fairly loosey-goosey definition of anarchism i would label that and an anarchist belief you don't have to destroy every system but you have to make room for the human in every system as, as much as possible and you do have to destroy the systems that pretend you don't have to make room for the human well and and i think we make that argument pretty explicitly in books um the idea that you know if if, if you build this perfect system and all it requires is that people fit into it. Then when people don't fit into it, it's their fault yeah. and you get to punish them for it. That's, that's uh we, we, we do that a lot. <laughs> we, we, that's a, that's a thing that starts on the playground and goes into the classroom. Um, that's, that's kind of our pathological move as a species. Um, I, you know, we, when we talk about Holden, we talk about him as being the holy fool. He's he's this kind of um, permanently, um, not even optimistic. I don't even know what the right word would be. He, he's he's the one who always thinks, for all that humanity is uh, terrible, it's there's more good there than not. Um, and yeah, I think that he is very consistent about people being shown uh, the opportunity to participate and to having a voice in their own lives and um, in not having the system grind people down as a statement of virtue for the yeah. system. Um, and, and yeah, we put the screws on him. I mean, we make the counter arguments pretty hard, too. <laughs> Yeah, but I I do think in the long run, you know, the 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 it emerges that if you if your goal is control, what you get is terrorism in in the long run, and then you get terrorists who you know are are 
heroic, or at least people who would be labeled terrorists who are heroic. You also get terrorists who, as we discussed earlier, Marco Inaros, who is the guy who stands in front of uh, an OPA logo that has been adapted by someone to be kind of kind of like the anarchist A also. You get terrorists who are just monsters and to, you know, there is a there is a left-wing tradition of valorizing those kinds of people. And I have I have no interest in that. And you guys do a great job of showing that yeah, that's there's, all there's, there. There's there's narcissists and monsters exist on any point of the political spectrum. That's uh, that's <laughs> those are that's just people. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I think part of the tension in the, in the expanse, but in, in reading history is, um, that no system, um, is perfect. No system exists that functions consistently throughout time. You don't, you don't come to a place of, of, uh, calm and pose, and then history ends. Uh, whatever the book says, um, there is no end of history, or there is, but it's not here yet, and it's only going to happen once. Um, I think that the part of what we did in the the books was show how um, you get to a golden age and how the golden age lasts as long as it lasts, and then it degrades. And then you got to do something else. Um, it's just, it's just that the golden age, the age of peace and prosperity, and and working together, and relative uh, calm, was the thirty years we skipped. So it's easy to miss. Uh, but but uh, but when we start back up on book seven, part of what was interesting about that for me was that it was the argument of how uh, a bureaucracy is forced by the people it's governing into a position where it can no longer be a purely moral force. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no argument here. Getting a little, getting a little heavier. Um, yeah, I don't, I, the, I don't think, I think the, the argument that we made was for, not for any particular, um solution but for guidelines on how to address you know, compassion good um people's having voices in their having a, a vote and a voice in their own governance good um people getting to uh choose how they live good up to a point and then you know when it starts impinging on other people it starts getting complicated um cooperation good but difficult to enforce and enforcement starts getting weird. And then, so I, 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 uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, we, we were accused uh, early on of being uh, dystopian and because, you know, shit was kind of crappy um, and it did not look like a utopian. It was not a utopian science fiction. And it, I don't think it's a dystopian science fiction either. I think it's, it's just topian. It's just, um, drawing from our history and imagining it pushed forward by putting it in a different setting. Yeah. And, and I'm deeply suspicious of the idea that technology solves human nature or anything that, else. <laughs> that, that it, when, when we invent the 
XYZ hyper mega tech, then suddenly humans will be better and we'll all get along. Um, it's it, it, as much as I grew up loving Star Trek as a kid, it's one of the things that always didn't work for me in the Star Trek world building is that somehow humans with technology, like all their problems went away. They stopped, they stopped competing with each other. They stopped having the internal strife that they have that suddenly all of their problems were external rather than internal. And I just never bought that, that even if there's no money, people will still crave ways to display that they are more successful than other people. Something will happen that lets those people show off their affluence, whether that's money or whatever it is. And that will create jealousy and other people will try to take that from them. And it's, Humans have been doing that since, you know, like Thog had a better spear than, you know, <laughs> Gurg, and Gurg murdered Thog in the middle of the night and took his spear, right? I mean, clear back to that, or or he liked his, his girlfriend better. Up till now, where, you know, I see a guy on the bus with a better iPad than me, and I wait till he's not looking, and I <laughs> stick it in my backpack and run away, right? I mean, I don't think that, 100 or 200 or 300 years from now just because we have fusion drives and whatever other technology we have in that future that suddenly i'm not going to be jealous of the thing the other guy has that's better than mine or jealous of his girlfriend or jealous of his boyfriend or jealous of his polyamorous unit whatever it is that that i don't i don't think we we get rid of human nature by having shinier toys i so just don't think it works that way there was this there was this conversation we had about uh, the idea of being post-human, right? And how you know people talk about like cyberpunk and and the, the post-human future where we're like uploaded into the cloud or some shit. I don't even know. Um, I always thought that the, if you really want a post-human organism, if you really want to to take humanity and and remove the essential human nature of it and change it into something else, just uh, make measures of success absolute instead of relative if you don't care who how much your neighbor's making you're not really human anymore because that's really what we are we're the monkey that cares if the other monkey got a bigger banana that's we were just thinking oh, you know my banana is plenty for me uh, it would be a different organism yeah, and every and time we try every time we try to pretend <laughs> that we're not like that it falls apart yeah, in Star Trek The Next Generation, it, clearly what happened is not that the replicator solved everything, is that something happened to all, every human being, at least every human being that we meet, uh, and they are no longer affected by those kinds of feelings. Riker is never, ever pissed that he is not the captain of the Enterprise and thinks that he deserves it. It's, 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 a, it's absurd. It's a universe that I enjoy. And it is a deeply, deeply inhuman or perhaps post-human one, if that's the if that's the world you want to live in. It's it's a great one for doing um, stories that are are uh, allegories or it's thought experiments. Yeah, it's great for thought experiments. Yeah, and that's cool. I mean that that's a that's a great thing to do. That science fiction does that well. Yeah. One thing I did. I mean, speaking of Star Trek. One thing that that strikes me about the first book versus the TV show, and I don't know if you guys were involved in this conversations, but uh, Avasarala, who is uh, a, a, a beloved 
character and in some ways a you know a a figure of the status quo i mean she works for the un at various times she has is sort of a, a dictatorial figure um although a, a fairly benign dictator as dictators go she is not a point of view character in the first book everything you get in the first book is the belt everyone is some flavor of downtrodden outcast if not revolutionary at least certainly not inside the power structure and in the show you are offered up of Asarawa as a you know as a as a as a protagonist and man when i'm reading that first book i do not see anyone affiliated with the un which might view itself like an enlightened federation but i do not view anyone affiliated with the un as a potential protagonist i mean that's one of the the tricks that you guys do and of course martin has done this very famously in a song of ice and fire where the seeming antagonists are revealed to be at least more interesting than you think they are um, so I'm wondering what you guys think about that switch. Do, does it matter? Because it seems to me that it matters, that it goes from a belt-centric show to a show in which a member of the the UN ruling council or whatever, yeah, undersecretary of whatever, is a point-of-view character from the get-go. I, I would quibble on it being a belter show um, or a belter project, even. Um, we we put Avasarala into the first season because we wanted to have eyes on Earth. We wanted to have the the political sphere um, represented. We wanted to have that story told, and um, also um, we wanted to have um, a woman in a major role uh, if we could get one. And we had a bunch of those in the later books. We we were a little thin in the first book. The first book was was. Uh, a little, a little testosterone rich, um, so that that was something that tacked against that. Um, but I think that yeah, I, I feel like the 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 kind of fake that happens in the show and in the books is you're all you're invited to um, really side with the OPA, really side with the Belters because they're downtrodden, they're the underdog. We love underdogs. We love you know, justice for the downtrodden. Um, and then you start seeing what it looks like when they have power. And it turns <laughs> out they're the same kind of asshole as everybody else. Um, and then then it stops and because, and the reason for that, the, the reason for that is um, as soon as you've decided that you're for the belt, you've already made a factionalist decision for yourself. You've already decided what faction you feel loyal to. And as soon as you do that, you fucked up. The argument of the books is factionalism ultimately is an evil. And the larger you can get your tribe, the better off you are. And the better off the world is, and the better off the situation is. Um, so I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I, I want the folks who engage with this to feel for the belt. I want them to feel for the Martians. I want them to feel for the folks on Earth. I want them to feel for Abbasarala at the absolute top of power. I want them to feel for the folks who are just trying to scrape through. I I, I want the humanity and all of those people to be present. Um, because when you start when you start looking at um, the rich and powerful 
the uh, the privileged and see them as uh, no longer human, that's that's still a problem. That's still an error. Hi, did you want to weigh in on that? Or are you satisfied with Daniel's answer? No, I think you covered it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I I completely. I guess to put it a to put it a different way, I like the fake out of the first book that you are distanced from Earth and Mars and are willing to see them, you know, in as almost if not pure villains, at least as as a much uh, as not a place that you want to extend empathy. And then you're invited in the later books to extend empathy, and just that move is made. Mm -hmm. is made a lot sooner in the show, which I, I see all the reasons that it makes sense. I also like the idea of, you know, having viewers an entire season only be on the side of the terrorists before they before they figure out one, the complexity of the belt, and two, the complexity of all of the all of the different cultures that are going on here. We could have done it that way too. I mean it I probably mean, you, did, you did in the novels, to be clear. Yeah, so. no. And 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 you know the 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 nice thing about making a TV show is you get to do it twice. You get to do it <laughs> so one thing I want to absolutely make sure that we talk about that uh, we haven't gotten to yet, and also I've uh, I this show has been on a little more than a year, and I still have not covered what is sometimes called anarcho capitalism, and you guys depict anarcho capitalism perfectly. So anarcho-capitalism, listener, I've had many questions about this, and I haven't shared it with you, but I'll just tell you briefly, if the idea of um, libertarianism is that the government should exist, and it should basically exist to protect people's guns and money, anarcho-capitalism is the idea that we should not have a government, but corporations should be free to use guns to protect their money, if that makes sense, and indeed make the justice system however they want it to. So there should be a justice system, but that justice system should not be beholden to anyone except for whoever is uh, writing the checks for the people who work for that justice system. And the one of the two main point of view characters uh, in the first book, Detective Miller, is in fact working for this sort of thing. He is a detective. He represents the police, but he is not the police for you know, the state, the government, whatever you want to say, let the record show I made air quotes around the state, even though that doesn't work <laughs> on podcasts. He is uh, a, a hired corporate gun. And this is a world in which the police exist, but they are, uh, you know, Elon Musk or whoever his later associate has hired them to, sure, keep order, but keep order on whatever the plutocrats' terms are. And I'm guessing... Daniel, that's why people said it was a dystopia, because people are terrified of the extension of capitalism into space, where at least we think maybe the state is going to restrain capitalism. As an anarchist, I don't think it does, but that's the that's the classic argument for why we need a, a liberal I, democratic state. Go ahead, Ty. I, I think those people are very unfamiliar with very recent history. <laughs> um, when when <clears throat> When the the colonists in the U.S. started to expand west, you know, the whole westward expansion thing, and uh, the government gave contracts to build railroads. Uh, there's two different companies that received those contracts to build railroads. 
and started building railroads across the West. Um, there were huge camps of people and material and money moving across. There was no police system. There was no cops out in the West. So there were private security. I mean, that's the Pinkertons famously were one of the, I mean, there's a reason why one of our private security teams in the expanse is called Pinkwater. Um, the, the Pinkertons were one of those groups where companies would pay the Pinkertons to be the de facto police force of their investment in the railroad. And they, they enforced corporate law, which is don't steal our stuff, you know, um, and, and do whatever you want, but don't steal our stuff was basically the, you know, the extent of their law enforcement. But that has, that has happened over and over and over again throughout history. Um, this, this is not a new concept. So the idea that these companies that have invested billions or even trillions of dollars into mining projects out in the belt are not going to also invest in uh, private corporate security to, to police those investments is, uh, you, you have to not have read any history to think that wouldn't happen. <laughs> Well, and, and and the Pinkertons also did a lot to help keep labor down, and uh, were used as as uh, the 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 hammer that kept that stable um, to the degree that they did. And then there was Labor Day, and the the, the other guys. <laughs> so that's good. Um, but there's also the East India Company. I mean, the East India Company was always what what I was thinking about with the the rule by corporation i don't think i don't think i know a better example yeah, of, there's not one probably uh, yeah yeah something coming in and you know a, a company coming in and, and conquering a nation um and that's actually something we play with very specifically in the fourth book we have a book called siebel burn where we have uh basically that character we have that guy um whose job it is to represent the interests of the corporation and to bring civilization and law to the to the the frontier. Yeah, I mean I really appreciate you. <laughs> I'm a historian of uh, of the American 19th century so I'm quite familiar with all this stuff but I must admit Ty I hadn't thought about how similar this is to the to the railroad expansion and of course, you know, the East India Company. This this is the way these things tend to work. This is the way, you know, I'm going to do the air quotes again, quote, progress happens. It tends to be, you know, at, at great expense and via great violence and done by a corporation, su supposedly on behalf of all of us. I mean, if you ask those people, they would say they were doing it for the British Empire or America. And then secondarily, they would say they're doing it for civilization progress. They would give you some kind of broad-minded explanation of how they were improving the world, I simply don't think we should fall for that ever, ever, ever again. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, rea that. the reality <laughs> is the, the, the establishment of a railway line connecting the East Coast to the West Coast in the United States absolutely changed people's lives. And, and suddenly traveling out West was a couple days ride on a train instead of a months long perilous journey in which a large percentage of people didn't make it they just died um 
so if the person's arguing, look, we need this railroad, mm -hmm. we need this railway to go across the country um, to the people of the time they're living in, that is a compelling argument. Yeah, that that argument works. So I think I think when we look back with a historical view of we stole a bunch of land from a bunch of native people. We did terrible things to the native cultures. We did terrible things to the people who were building the railroad. We were basically enslaved uh, a, a Chinese population to work on the railroad. I mean, you look back at a historical perspective. Yeah, there was some pretty awful stuff there. But from a from a contemporary perspective, the people who live there, that's a good argument. The argument of we really need a railroad. Um, I think that's always true. I think it's always true that in the moment you're in, the argument of, look, we need oil, or look, we need the cobalt that we're digging out of Africa. We need these things. The contemporary listener goes, yeah, we do need those things. Of course we do. So of course we're going to have to do some stuff to get that. Then a hundred years later, we look back and go, probably shouldn't have enslaved entire countries in Africa to get our cobalt. Um, so I, I, I think I think the argument that like we should never let that happen again <laughs> misunderstands the myopia <laughs> of the human species when we're in the moment where we need stuff. The dream would be to be able to achieve that kind of project without the raw exploitation, slavery, and genocide. To the best of my knowledge, it hasn't been done. Since humans have done large-scale projects like that, it has not been done without those things. I would... I would love to see us mine asteroids, and I would love to see us mine asteroids without the kind of anarcho-capitalism that has, yes, you're absolutely right, Ty, accompanied every, you know, enormous far-out project frontier creation thing that I can think of. I think that, I mean, if we're talking about the real world, which, you know, not, <laughs> I'm not an expert there. I'm not, that's not my, reality is not my jam. But um, I think that the, the thing that would make that possible is automated labor. Yeah. Um, the question then becomes, why do you feed the people who were the non-automated labor? Um, uh, and that, that, that's a, that's a whole nother can of worms. Um, and with actually, and, and we start talking about stuff like basic. I mean, when we have uh, our, our version of uh, a welfare state in the the expanse too. We have Earth, where everybody has the right to shelter and food and basic medical care. It's just you have absolutely no freedom about what that is. Mm -hmm. um, and it gets mistaken for basic income a lot, and we have to have a lot <laughs> of patients. But but, but well, I mean, and, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say that. Automated labor, yes, I agree. Uh, but that will not be the solution until you have a piece of automated labor equipment, a robot, if you will, that is lighter than a human, can accomplish everything a human can accomplish, and costs less than feeding a human costs. Yep. Because until you have those three things, we won't use the robots, we'll use humans, because humans are cheap. Humans are easily accessible, they're inexpensive, and they can do an astonishing variety of tasks with a single model of human. Yep. So, you know, people love to go, well, the, the asteroid belt will be mined by robots. Your, your future isn't realistic. Yes, probably it will, but not with robots we have now. 
the robots we have now are heavy. They're stupid. They're they're very uh, specific in the tasks they can do. And when you ask them to do something that isn't what they were built to do, they they have no ability to improvise and do it. Humans do all of those things. There's a reason why we still send small humans into mining tunnels. There's a reason we do that because humans are cheap to get. They're easily available. And when you send a human into a small tunnel, it can make decisions inside the tunnel in a way that a robot cannot. So if, if unless the robots have less weight than the humans do, people also go, well, humans are too expensive to step into space. You know what else would be expensive to set up into space? <laughs> tons and tons of robots. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, until the robots get better at doing stuff than humans are and way less to put in orbit uh, and are at least comparable in expense to keep up there, I think we're going to send people because we keep doing that. We do it over and over again. Humans are cheap. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And then this is something I mean, you especially have to disabuse like first year college students of this is they think that humans are expensive now. And it's like, no, no, the reason why every all of your stuff is made in Vietnam or Bangladesh is because all the humans that you have grown up around uh, are expensive. Yeah. But, yeah. Human, but that's that's an artificial thing. We have laws and regulations and standards that have made those humans expensive. But again, we have not expanded that that sense if yeah. we can. We haven't we haven't gotten the tribe big enough yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it, it's it's very clear that for most Westerners, their tribe does not include Chinese sweatshop workers. It just doesn't. Or um, or you know, cobalt miners in the Congo. My kid is not going down into uh, a shaft. The other people's kids yeah. are. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, and there and that's where and that's right where Ty brought us when he was talking about hey pro progress is good you know we need progress and then well, it's gonna it's gonna cost but yeah. i got i'm holding up an iphone right now this is this is this is not morally uh pure this is i mean look we're talking on computers i know um that are not you know, this this is a uh, i don't i don't think we can argue that we walked away from omelas here guys i mean we were this is uh we're we're pretty soundly in omelas the three of us yeah no you're you're not wrong can we end on a happier no wait ty am i correct did this begin as a game uh well i mean it the original original idea began as a pitch for a video pitch. game yeah yeah that's cool that's fun yeah i and... came into it when it had it morphed into a tabletop role-playing game yeah. so it had it had gone through several incarnations before uh i showed up Ty had done a lot of world building and a lot of uh, kind of play testing. And, and uh, I, I brought a little bit of how to write novels and that was kind of my, my contribution. And I've, I've always wondered, so with, do you think the multiple perspectives and kind of, you know, flexibility comes from the idea that everyone in this universe would have been like in a game, you know, a person making choices. Does that make sense? Uh, you take it. Oh, I was just gonna say. I mean, some of the bones of the the MMO pitch are still in there. I, you know, like at the time, World of Warcraft was big and it had two <laughs> factions. So, 
So we were gonna have three <laughs> factions. You know, that's where the Earth, Mars, and the belt thing comes from. You know, then you have three factions now instead of two. And that makes us better. Um but the the other thing is that in in video games, you're only allowed to make the choices the programmer yeah. allowed you to make. You know, that that is that is the limitation of video games. Um so I, I don't know how I don't know how uh, um, complex that part of the world building would have been if it had wound up as a video game. Yeah, but the the idea that you have all these different perspectives, so many people who are, have their own view of the right, and they are drawn pretty well, suggests to me the origin of you know you can imagine this as a as an RPG where a bunch of people are around a table and have and have different perspectives in a way that a video game and many other forms of storytelling would not allow. Anyway, that was my thought. I think that's all, I mean, th there's also a, a, a philosophical point in there that I think informs both the decision to play with as a, a role-playing game and the decision to make it as a novel and the way that we actually did it and the and the show we built out of it, which um, it's, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's a project you see in other places too, where, you're asked to imagine the world from someone else's point of view and asked to imagine it from the point of view of someone who you kind of disagree with and asked to agree with people who disagree with each other. I mean, if you look at Holden and, and Miller in the first book, they're profoundly different points of view that you're both root, you, you wind up rooting for both of them. Um, there are books that are, uh, Jacqueline Carey did a series of books um, that was basically a retelling of the Lord of the Rings from Sauron's point of view yeah. and made that into a, a, a space that was very empathetic and understandable. Um, and all of the, I think when, when these projects are at their best, they are uh, invitations to empathize with somebody you didn't think you would be empathizing with. I think that's a wonderful note. To, to end to end on as opposed to uh as, as opposed, opposed to cobalt mining yeah okay yeah okay. as opposed to cobalt mining now we brought it up again so uh the expanse an invitation to uh to imagine yourself in in someone else's shoes who may also be in a uh intergalactic war trying to kill you and it's really fun to read and watch all right thank you so much daniel and ty this was a pleasure thank you thanks man